down. Isaiah's a pretty good sized book. But Isaiah is quoted more than any other single solitary uh, book of prophecy in the New Testament. Um, when the apostles went out with the message uh, presenting Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior, uh, one of the top evidences they used in this behalf was that he was the fulfillment of prophecies that had been uttered hundreds and hundreds of years ago, going back from the very beginning. That was their constant claim. Uh, uh, when Matthew began by saying, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, etc., what Matthew is saying is, here is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham, the promise that God made to Isaac, the promise that God made to Jacob, and now in that lineage, just as God promised, here comes uh, Jesus. And, and if you'll remember from Matthew about every other paragraph in the early stages of Matthew is this happened to fulfill what the prophet said. And as you go through the Gospels and as you head into the book of Acts, for example, the, the first sermon of the New Testament on the day of Pentecost, uh, of that sermon, most of the sermon is quotation of Old Testament prophecy and interpretation of those prophecies. That's the majority of the sermon, and that is correlated with the eyewitness account of all of the apostles, but that is that is a chief evidence. So when we look at any book of prophecy, and Isaiah specifically, you're looking at a book. We haven't proved anything about the book yet, and that's what we hope to do as we get through it. You're looking at a book that the New Testament writers claim wrote well in advance of a Messiah to come. And it is the claim of the New Testament writers that everything about the life and ministry, and the death, the resurrection, uh, the church, all of these particulars that are revealed in the New Testament were forecast in the Old Testament, and that Isaiah is, of course, as I said before, the number one prophet that's quoted all the way through there. So the very validity of the Bible itself uh, stands or falls with a book like Isaiah. In other words, if if uh, if you can discredit this as being a witness of the Messiah in the process, you discredit every one of the apostles because every last one of them claimed that Isaiah was a witness of the Messiah to come. You also discredit Jesus because Jesus quoted from Isaiah more than he did any other. Remember when he stood up in the synagogue and he read a passage of scripture and he said, this passage is now being fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, he was quoting from Isaiah, reading from Isaiah at that time. Uh, a number of times when he talked to the people, uh, he made some statement from Isaiah and said, this is just like Isaiah said. So the validity of Jesus, the validity of the apostles, the validity of the New Testament is tied up uh, in this particular book. In other words, if it falls, uh, they don't look too good either. On the other hand, if this book stands, you've got something that is, uh, at least in my judgment, impossible to explain. Uh, Isaiah was written somewhere between 740 and 690 B.C. In other words, Isaiah prophesied, preached during that period of time, 740 to 690 B.C., over a period of 50 years. Uh, Isaiah is not a book that was uh, where a man sat down and wrote that particular book. It is a collection of sermons preached by Isaiah over a period of about 50 years. Uh, and then after presenting this material and writing a certain percentage of it down, uh, then it was collected together in the form that we have it today, and we put it together in this one book given to and attributed to Isaiah. But the material was uttered over that period of 50 years. If you can actually prove that this material was written that far in advance, and then you can actually historically show that the events actually came to pass, you have something that is 
uh, in my judgment, again, impossible to explain except through the inspiration of God. I don't know how, man, uh, to give you an idea of just how long 700 years is, the United States has been a nation for only 200 years. 200 years. Um, can you imagine at the time of those 13 little colonies, uh, somebody sitting down and, and saying that, uh, that 200 years down the pike, there will be 250 million people and it will be the, the most prosperous country on the face of the, the earth. And, and then to identify airplanes and things of that nature that uh, in 200 years ago. Well, to, to take your mind back further, you, you, to get the perspective for 700 years, you'd have to go back to the time of Chaucer uh, in England. Uh, to get a, a 700 year and, and, and try to get somebody in, in that period of time with Chaucer, uh, America hadn't even been discovered yet. I mean, it was, it was still, oh, there may have been some um, people from the uh, Swedish or Norwegian countries that had sailed and, and hit this unaware of what it was, but from the standpoint of Europe uh, and the, the knowledge and the educational system, it was, uh, you know, when Columbus got here, he, he thought he found a shortcut to India. And so uh, that, that is a large body of, of, of years. Isaiah wrote, and if you could show that he actually wrote this material that far in advance, and then you can show the kind of correlation we're talking about, I don't know how anybody would explain that except that Isaiah was, as he claimed to be, inspired by God. Okay, the prophecies in Isaiah and the prophets generally fall in three categories. Uh, in, the, in the way they were uttered. They keep in mind that when the man spoke, God wanted the people of that day to recognize him as a prophet. He also wanted pre, uh, people of following generations to recognize him as a prophet. And then he wanted people of all time to look back on him as a prophet. Well, how do you accomplish this? Well, Moses, had, had when, as the first <coughs> prophet of Israel, had set the stage in Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter, and verse 15, when he said, The Lord God will raise up a prophet like unto me. And then he went on to say, Now, if you say in your heart, uh, How will I know whether or not the man is a prophet of God? He said, if, the, if he speaks, and what he says follows not, then you'll know he spoke it presumptuously. In other words, he's false. It's, it's out of his own mind, because if it comes from God, it, it's going to happen. And so the Jew had it firmly ingrained in his mind that a mark of a prophet of God is that whatever he said would come to pass exactly that way. All right, now the prophets were primarily preachers to their particular day. In other words, Isaiah isn't preaching directly to the United States or, or Russia or anybody like that. He's a preacher to the people of his day, and so are the others. They were primarily proclaimers of God's message to that people. In, in speaking to those people, though, God had to have evidence, and if he wanted other generations to respect Isaiah, there had to be evidence, and this is where the foretelling comes in. So the prophecies would fall in three categories. There were those statements from the prophets that would be fulfilled in the lifetime of those people that were alive. That would validate Isaiah to those people as a prophet of God. The reason that Isaiah was reverenced and respected as a prophet of God is because of those short prophecies that were fulfilled in their lifetime. In other words, something way off into the future, like about Jesus, that hadn't even come about, was no evidence to the people of Isaiah's day that he was a prophet of God. I mean, that was just some wild thinking, maybe. But it was statements fulfilled in their lifetime that caused them to put their trust in these statements that were off in the future. Okay? The second type of prophecy was prophecies that were fulfilled after their lifetime 
over a period of the next several generations. Okay, Isaiah dies. God wants this book carried on down. He wants it copied accurately. He wants it reverenced. He wants it respected. Uh, when Jesus finally comes on the scene, he wants that book there without having been tampered with. How do you accomplish this? Well, the next stage of prophecy is that Isaiah uttered statements about Israel and about the nations that over those period of generations between Isaiah and Christ came to be fulfilled. And it was the coming of the fulfillment of these events that continued the Jewish respect of Isaiah. And so they continued to respect it and to reverence it and to accurately copy it and hold on to it because they could actually see these particular things unfolding. For example, when, when Babylon conquered uh, Judah and carried them into ca captivity, well, that had been spoken of by Isaiah. When Medo-Persia defeated Babylon, Isaiah called it by name. When Cyrus came in and led the way of Medo-Persia uh, defeating Babylon and, and passed the edict to set the Jews free and they went back home, Isaiah called him by name and, and described the, the event. And so those things would continue the respect through those years. All right, then there, there were those statements that would be fulfilled in Jesus and in the church in the New Testament. All right, now, you and I believe the short-range prophecies because of the long range. In other words, those short range that Isaiah uttered and was fulfilled in their lifetime, I can't deal with them intellectually. I can't prove them or disprove them. But these long range statements, if I can prove that a statement was written here and it was fulfilled hundreds of years later, then I can deal with that. So I believe the short range material, because of the long range, those Jews believe the long range prophecies because of the short range that was being fulfilled in their day. And so by doing it this way, God has created a book where beginning with Isaiah all through the centuries and into Christianity, people have always had valid reason for reverencing and respecting uh, this particular book. Now, what we did a little bit with last week is we gave the background on the countries that we're going to be dealing with, especially with Assyria. And, and how they would affect the people of Israel and the, and the preaching of Isaiah at this time. And so I'm not going back over that. It won't be necessary for what we'll cover today. But I will be do just a little bit of review on the dating of the book itself. And so that uh, if somebody says to you, well, how do you know Isaiah was written 700 years before Christ? I mean, that's a claim. How do you prove it? Number one, the Dead Sea Scrolls of, uh, discovered in 1947, the actual literal manuscripts of Isaiah and all the other prophets that dated two centuries before Christ. In other words, we actually have manuscripts of Isaiah. The manuscripts themselves, the, the empirical manuscript, dates two centuries before Christ that, from the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Greek Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures somewhere between 280 and 240 B.C., Obviously, you can't translate from something that doesn't exist. So, so you can nail down the entire manuscript of Isaiah during that period of time as, as something that existed and was in the process of being copied. I'm saying you can nail it down from an empirical standpoint. To give you an idea of the accuracy thing and the way it was transmitted, um, before the Dead Sea Scrolls in 47, the oldest copy we had of Isaiah was actually the 9th century A.D. That was the oldest extant copy. And this is why that, uh, for example, to show you something on the dating, one of the most renowned atheists of all time uh, was a man by the name of Voltaire. 
And Voltaire read Isaiah, and he was very impressed with some of the materials. And he said if it could ever be empirically proven to him that Isaiah was written before the events, that he would have to acknowledge that that was an example of prophecy. In other words, he never challenged that this material was accurate and was historically fulfilled. What he challenged was the empirical evidence for that book having been written in advance. From Voltaire's standpoint, it was too perfect. There's just no way that, that someone could see that far in the future and hit the nail on the head like that. All right, when they discovered these Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, one of the interesting things that happened is that when we took our manuscript of Isaiah that's in the 9th century A.D., and the Dead Sea Scrolls, it goes 1,100 years back to two centuries before Christ, and we compared them, the improvements that could be made in the 9th century A.D. edition were negligible. In other words, that they had so accurately and perfectly copied that material. In fact, all you have to do to show how accurate it was, when the King James translation was translated, they did not have access to the Dead Sea Scrolls. All they had, the oldest copy of Isaiah they had was the 9th century A.D. And this is true. What you actually have now, if you have a King James Bible, is really the fifth revision of the King James, unless you've got the New King James, and then you've got the sixth revision. But what you really have is not the 1611. You've got the fifth revision of the King James. Take that King James that you have and put it side by side with one of the newer translations, and you'll see how accurately that was transmitted. The improvements are negligible. Uh, you're, you're not going to miss anything from studying from either one. I mean, you, you may have an advantage. I prefer the newer translation because I prefer the language in the language I speak now. But from the standpoint of the concepts, once you get the meaning of those old English words, uh, you're really not going to get anything else. As far as addition, they, they had transmitted it so accurately that any improvement that could be made was negligible uh, during, during that period of time. So what it showed was just how meticulous the Jew was in handling those scriptures. And also, by the way, we can say the same thing about the, the New Testament documents. All right, now, empirically, physically, something we grab hold of, we've got Isaiah back here two and a half centuries before Christ. All right, now the next way we look at it, from the standpoint of putting it back at this time, language is living, okay? Just like the English language changes. Read Chaucer. Uh, in the 1380s, and it looked like a foreign language to you, and yet that is the English of that day. Read Shakespeare, you know, and, and that will not look like the English that you use. Read the King James Bible, and then read one of the modern translations. They don't look alike. Language is living. Words become obsolete. New words are interjected. Uh, sentences change their structure. This is true of all languages. They, they live and they move. So much as this the is the case that any English language scholar if you give that person a book and give him sufficient amount of material and sentence structure to work with and sufficient amount of words, he'll pinpoint within not too many years when that book was written. I mean, I guarantee you, you won't pull something out of the last century and tell him it was written now, even if you're dealing with a fiction story. He'll look at the words, the vocabulary, the sentence structure, and he'll, he'll pinpoint that. In fact, they've got people that even on your speech, uh, there are scholars in language that'll pinpoint what part of the United States you're from and also will pinpoint the timing on any particular language given sufficient amount of words and, and sentence structure from you. Uh, just like we don't have any problem listening to somebody from New York or Alabama and determining one of them's from the Northeast and one of them's from the South. Well, I'm saying language scholars can do that same thing. So we take Isaiah, and what we find is that Isaiah is written in 8th century Hebrew. Well, then the question becomes, how does a man down here close to the 1st century 
write a book in 8th century Hebrew any more than somebody like me sitting and writing uh, material in the language that Chaucer wrote. Okay, so it's in 8th century Hebrew. Not only this, but you can't quote from something that doesn't exist. And so from the, the time that Isaiah was a finished product, it is quoted and used among the Jews down to the time of Christ, and we can historically take Isaiah and trace it and its quotations and its use all the way back up to the time of Isaiah. Another thing is the, the writer of Isaiah, whenever you write, you deal with names, unless you're in a fairy tale, you, you, you deal with specific names, you deal with events, uh, you deal with cities, uh, you deal with the geography, uh, you deal with any number of things of, of that nature. I could not sit down and write a story that supposedly happened in Brooklyn and deceive somebody from Brooklyn. I just couldn't do it. Any more than he can sit down in Brooklyn and, and write about something that's happening here in Grundy County and deceive somebody in Grundy County. Isaiah could not write the material that we have in this book at any other time but this time. To give you an example of how perfect some of the historical statements are, in Isaiah 20 and verse 2, there is a mention of a, an Assyrian king by the name of Sargon. For years, scholars challenged that because there was no record of Sargon in the Assyrian historical records that we had at that point. So they said, this is an example where Isaiah messed up. You know, he's given us a fictitious name that's not there. Well, then in 1843, an archaeologist by the name of Bottom uncovers the palace of Sargon over in Assyria. And so we not only find about Sargon, but we find, we find everything we find out about Sargon perfectly correlates with what, what, we had, what we have in the Bible. In other words, I'm saying the name was nowhere in history. The only place you found Sargon up until 1843 was in the Bible. It was no place else. And then after the, the uncovering of the palace and the ruins in that particular area of Assyria, all of a sudden now, if you want to read about Sargon, go to the encyclopedias and you read all you want to read about him. I mean, they, 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 the Assyrians had tremendous historians. How did Isaiah know about him? Well, what's true of Sargon is true of other events that uh, he records accurately. In other words, the Assyrians had historians too. The Babylonians had historians. And we can go back and read from their history. And the Assyrians and the Babylonians interacted with the Jews. And these wars that Israel supposedly had in the, in the days of Isaiah, the famines that supposedly happened at a certain time, the battle that happened, say, with Tiglath-Pileser or with some other king or Nebuchadnezzar or whoever it would be, that they either happened or they didn't happen. And so if, if we've got a writer that mentioned something like that that didn't happen, all we have to do is go back and check it with the historians of these other countries. And I'm saying that to the degree that the information is there, and man, a tremendous amount of it is there because of the quality of the Assyrian and Babylonian records, there is not a single solitary point in Isaiah that I'm aware of, or from any of the sources that I've read, that anybody can go to and say, hey, this is invalid, this is historically inaccurate. Uh, to help you appreciate that statement, there's not too many newspaper editors, I don't think, that would make that kind of statement about their material. I mean, that stuff comes off the press so quick that they know there's inaccuracies there. It is difficult to write and be perfectly accurate. Uh, even the best of us research and sometimes get some of our facts wrong. It's very difficult. And so here we have a book that sits here, and a, a Christian historian is willing to make the statement to anybody, to any unbeliever, show me the, the first historical statement 
that is inaccurate there. Discredit any name, discredit any battle, discredit any event, you know, that discredit in any way possible, discredit the language in any way, show me any language form that was not used at that time, or, or a language form that was not used to, to later on, or whatever, it's not there. Suffice it to say, just as assuredly as you can validate that the Gettysburg Address was written in the 1860s by Abraham Lincoln, or that our Declaration of Independence uh, was penned at the time it was, 1776, or that uh, Chaucer's works, such as the Canterbury Tales, were written in about 1384, or Shakespeare was written at a certain time, has been accurately transmitted with that same kind of evidence, you can validate Isaiah as having been written this time and accurately transmitted. In fact, so far as works of antiquity are concerned, there is nothing outside of the Bible that will compare with books like Isaiah in the amount of evidence that you can offer for them. Okay, so remember now, the important thing, if you're going to go to any prophecy and use it as an evidence of the inspiration of this book and all, just reading a prophecy and then coming to the New Testament and reading its fulfillment, or even documenting from some other historical source its fulfillment, will not get the job done. You have to also be able to show that person that it was actually written in advance. And if you might wonder, for example, I don't know everybody whether everybody here is a Christian or your background or anything. I don't, I don't know all of you tonight. But if, if you are and you wonder, well, what about these individuals that are intellectuals and, and unbelievers? Uh, how do they handle uh, the thing about Christianity? Uh, if you were to mention Isaiah to them, they would say, well, it, it was written after it happened. And then it was redacted and made to appear as prophecy. That's, that's, that's the way they would say it. It was written after the events happened and then redacted and made to appear as prophecy, and they would say that for, for everything else. And well, why would they make a statement like that? Because they, they approach the subject with the presupposition that there is no God. Uh, with the presupposition that there is no God, there can be no inspiration. If there's no inspiration, obviously there can be no prophecy. Well, since you've got something here that seems to be uh, said about something in the future, the only way to explain that is it was written afterwards. And so where you start with your presupposition has a whole lot to do with your, with your thinking there. And most uh, unbelievers are unaware that the evidence is even there and is of the quality that we're talking about for the simple reason that in the United States, now this wasn't true in the first century, we're going to get into that, there was no Christians in the first century that were just born into a Christian family. Everybody approached from unbelief, and so you didn't become a Christian except on the basis of evidence. But in the United States, Christianity has been dominant for so long that a very large, maybe the biggest percent of Christians have been brought up with something and have embraced it because it was part of their culture, part of their family, part of their society, and they really have never taken the time to study out the, very, the things that we've talked about. It's been, you, you don't tend to challenge something that everybody else believes. You tend to challenge things that, that other people question or, or discredit in some way. And so the end result is that maybe Christianity has suffered because uh, that uh, you've got so many out there who cannot present valid evidence for what they believe, and so from the, the person that has not been brought up as a Christian, uh, when he challenges that, and he gets some statement, well, uh, you'll know it when you feel it, or I just know it's so, or it's so because the Bible says so, uh, that doesn't come across very strong if you're, if, you're, if you're in a society that has been taught to think in a scientific way and to believe things only on the basis of investigation and proof. It just simply doesn't come across. Uh, in fact, let's get out of religion a little bit. 
And uh, Mark, I've got three of them here tonight, he would tell me something, and I ask you why you believe it. Forget about it. We're not talking about the Bible now. He said, I don't I just believe it. I just believe it because it's so. Well, I don't know about you, but when somebody says something to me like that, I don't just believe it. Uh, if, if somebody says that uh, so-and-so got shot down there, and I say, did you see it? No. You know anybody else has seen it? No. Why do you believe it? I just believe somebody got shot down there. Well, I'm not going to buy into that. Maybe they did, but I'm not buying into it. It's going to, it's going to take more than that to convince me. And so the, one of the reasons that Christianity is not converting in the United States now to the extent that it was once was is because there is more unbelief and skepticism and yet Christians are operating from a culture where they just assume everybody believes the Bible. And so they go out and they say, well, you are, the Bible says such and such. Well, that's fine if you believe it. Well, Isaiah prophesied this. That's fine if you believe it was written 700 years in advance. But, but otherwise it's not. And so I believe that Christians need to take the time to study the books of the Bible in the way that we're talking about. And if, you'll, if you're familiar with how familiar you are with the book of Acts, again, only you know, take your mind back to the inception of Christianity. Okay, let's go back to Jesus and the Gospels. Think about Jesus as he walked with his disciples. And think about the apostles as they spread the message. Find me one single solitary person that made the decision to believe in Jesus short of concrete evidence that he could sink his intelligence into. Thomas said, I won't believe until I touch where they put the spear and hammer the nails. Uh, Peter um, denied him because he didn't believe he was coming out of that grave. He didn't believe it. There wasn't a single one of the apostles. They everyone fled in unbelief. There wasn't a single one that believed it, and they didn't believe it until they saw it with their own eyes. Remember when the women came with a story to the apostles, hey, he's risen, Mary Magdalene, the others, they looked at them and said as ones that mocked. They, didn't, they thought they were crazy, out of their head. Uh, remember when he first talked to Mary, she thought the gardener was talking to her. She had, where, where have they laid his body? She didn't believe anything until there was evidence there. What about Paul? He had knocked Paul in the head. Um, what about people in Pentecost? They had all the miraculous there. There was all those prophecies. And see, the Jews, the material that I've been talking about, nobody had to prove to a Jew in the first century that Isaiah was written 700 years before. Man, he'd been studying it for 700 years. He had it. He knew it. So nobody had to prove that. He's been carrying it around and quoting it, and his daddy and his grandfather and his grandfather, and, and man, they, could, they didn't even have it divided up in chapters and verses like we do. They were so familiar with it that you could say Isaiah said such and such, and they could go to it. That's how familiar they were with it. And so he had that. Nobody had to prove that. And so on the day of Pentecost, when they quoted these passages, and then they, they were aware of these historical events, and they could tie the two together. And then here they had these uh, Galileans, unlearned, speaking in these languages that they'd never gone to school and learned, and they put all of this together, and they says, hey, you know, men and brethren, what shall we do? But what convicted them? It was literal, hardcore evidence. It wasn't some emotional statement that says, let Jesus come into your heart. I've never found that statement. Uh, all, I, all I want Jesus to come into your heart, but I'm saying I've never found that individual in the New Testament that was converted as a result of somebody just walking up and saying, let Jesus come into your heart. The people that I read about being converted, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, He's driving along in his chariot in Acts 8. What's he reading? Isaiah. Isaiah. Reading Isaiah 53. And he's baffled. 
And Philip gets up there and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, no, I don't understand it. Uh, he said, who's this man speaking of, of himself or somebody else? And he, and he begins at that passage in Isaiah and preached Christ. And man, he put two and two together right away. That he had no problem saying that, hey, this is exactly what we've been looking for for, for 700 years. And immediately he wanted that thing stopped and they, and they baptized him. But the point is... He was convinced that Christ was the fulfillment of these prophecies in Isaiah that were uttered over 700 years ago, and that's what converted him. The same is, same is true with all the other sermons that you have there, that there is a reasoning process. Uh, in Acts 28, 23, it says, Paul reasoned from morning to night from the Psalms and the prophets and the law, persuading them concerning Jesus and the kingdom. Those Jews were sitting there with the prophecies and, the, and Moses' writings, and they were comparing every point with what they knew had happened, and it was only when they were convinced that all of these things that had taken place were the direct fulfillments of these that they made the decision to go ahead and, and be Christians. And so I'm saying that Christianity conquered the Roman world with evidence, and we maybe have done a disservice uh, when we've created a situation over several generations where we have just had people born into it, and, and then we have come up with, with generations of people who really just believe something because they've been told that it's so. Now, that doesn't stop the accuracy of it. But where it hinders them is when they try to convince somebody who is not already a believer. And by that, I'm talking about somebody who's not a believer from this culture. A lot of people out here that are unbelievers have this culture background where they, they do believe in Jesus. They just really haven't uh, submitted to it, and, and they have a, a high element of faith. But I'm talking about when you talk to somebody that does not come from this culture and who simply doesn't buy into something that that is not presented to him on the basis of evidence. Okay, let's look at Isaiah, written at this time, and notice now some of the things that uh, Isaiah is going to deal with. We said, first of all, he was a preacher primarily to the people of that day. Okay? All right, in the days of Isaiah, look how he identifies himself in verse 1. Uh, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah the son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. He tells you when he lived. He tells you when he prophesied. To get a good background on Isaiah, we, we simply need to go back into the historical setting and read about the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, of these kings, Uzziah was a godly king made a mistake in his old age and died a leper, but for most of his life he was a godly man who honestly loved and respected the law of God. Jotham, his son, was also a pretty godly individual. Imperfect, made some mistakes, but he definitely was a believer in God. Ahab had very little, if any, belief in God. Ahaz, corrupt to the core. All right, Hezekiah, one of the best kings that Judah ever had. Uh, extremely strong believer in God. Okay, you've got these kings during the time that Isaiah is reigning. Now, here's the, the situation. Israel is at a time of prosperity. Okay, one of the most prosperous times. Uh, David had conquered. Solomon had taken it further. And, and so there's, Israel, in many ways, is comparable to our country. There, there's all kinds of sin and wickedness at the time that Isaiah begins to preach. And so you say, how can they be so prosperous with all that sin going on? But they were riding a crest. The United States would have never became the great country it is if the morality that exists today had always been here. We're riding a crest. We're, we're riding the fruits of our forefathers who wrote a constitution based on the principles in the Bible 
of legislators and congressmen and presidents who have been strong believers in the principles of this book down through, down through the years and of a majority of our population that have respected this. We're riding that crest. We reap the fruits of it. And we're falling apart. And if we were always in our, our, our free sex, uh, do your own thing. You've come a long way. Get all, long way, baby. Get all the gusto out of life. You know, don't let anybody get you to sacrifice for anybody else or anything like that. Do your own thing. If we were always that way, we wouldn't be here right now. And so we're riding a crest. Well, in Isaiah, if, they had, if Judah had always been in the way that it is when Isaiah comes on the scene, they wouldn't be here. They, they became great because of a man like David. Solomon carried it on. Despite his blunders, he, st he still did some right things, although Solomon introduced him to idolatry. The split took place when Rehoboam became king. And Israel, the ten tribes, are in disarray. You know, they're just as ungodly as they can be. But Judah is holding on with a few godly kings. Idolatry is on the rampage. Uh, the, the people are seeped in materialism. Now, you ask yourself the question, how can they have become so prosperous? And that's the state they're in as Isaiah goes to preach. And, and you'd think that that would cause a thankfulness towards God. You'd think they'd believe any stronger. But you can ask the same question about us today. Why don't we believe stronger than we did 100 years back? We're wealthier. We're, we're richer. We had a constitution based on, on these principles. Uh, and, and we became a wealthy, prosperous nation. Uh, why, don't, why don't we believe less? And, and instead of more, uh, uh, history tells us that uh, spiritually, man is at his worst, the more prosperous he is. We're talking about mankind in general, that we, we tend to be more loose. We, we tend to be more into ourselves as we're prosperous. Uh, in times of need, in times of hardship, uh, it tends to bring out the best qualities. We tend to be more concerned about one another. The very best qualities are drawn out of, it, out of mankind in periods like a war or a depression. I mean, that's sad to say, but that's the truth. The best qualities, go back and read the poetry and the writings uh, written, at the hard, written during hard times and look at the writings written during prosperous times. I mean, look at what you've got on TV now and the type of books that's selling and compare that to when times were harder in, in this country. But people tend to be more in themselves when times are prosperous. All right, now with the idols. The idols, maybe were not as goofy as they looked to us. Uh, the idols obviously had something to offer or people wouldn't have bought into it. The idols were fertility gods. Uh, Baal was a fertility god. Uh, the way you worship Baal was by fornicating. And so had they had all these priestess, uh, these female prostitutes that were servants of Baal, and, and you worship Baal by fornicating and partying and having a lascivious time. Then there was the Astra and the female goddesses, and you worship them. They were fertility gods. Uh, to show you a little bit of this that's got into Christianity, the egg and the Easter bunny, symbols of fertility. And that's how they got into that. Uh, the, it was people that were believers in fertility gods converted to Christianity and brought in some of their, their symbols there. But the point is that that the, when the Israel lived in a world where people were serving gods that allowed them to party and to satisfy their own flesh and to do what they wanted to, and here you had this all-star all Jehovah who restricted sex to marriage, who uh, said it was wrong to steal and wrong to kill and wrong to cheat, uh, who taught compassion towards the downtrodden, who told you that if you were wealthy, you had to be concerned about other people and to share, share your wealth, uh, who seemed to, to hit at servitude of self and, and, and said you ought to give of yourself and do for others 
these were the, the principles of Jehovah uh, as compared to the other. And so you can see how that in a wealthy time that the other was easy to buy into. And they bought into it. And so Isaiah comes on the scene during this time. Now here's what he's going to do. He's going to condemn the sin. And as he condemns the sin, he's going to try to get them to look at many of the consequences that are taking place in their own life and get them to realize that, hey, these problems are there because of your lifestyle. Well, that's pretty hard to get people to buy into. Uh, we're all familiar about what happened to Andy Rooney. Anybody, everybody know why he got kicked off TV? He made a very simple statement. Very simple. He said, we need to accept the fact that many of our problems, and he named AIDS and some other things, are there because of our lifestyle. That's all he said. That we need to accept the fact that many of the problems we brought on ourselves are there because of our lifestyle. Well, man, the, the homosexual community attacked him. I mean, they do not, AIDS is, is portrayed like the flu. You know, they don't want to accept it as something that's there because of their lifestyle. What happens today to any politician that's willing to come out and say that, hey, what's all this talk about eggs? If, if, if we stop the loose sexual practice, uh, one journalist, in fact, I've got this in statements over at the school that we hand out to the children, said it would be impossible for AIDS to even exist in a society where you just have one man to one wife, one woman. It, could, it, don't, it don't exist in that kind of atmosphere. It, it started in the homosexual community. It spread into the, the drug-using people. It got into the heterosexual realm as a result of homosexuals, or of actually bisexuals would be accurate, but bisexuals who have relations with male and female got it from their homosexual practices and brought it into the heterosexual realm. Uh, they gave blood and put it into our blood supply. And so we've got something that that exists because of a lifestyle that we have and, and that we've bought into. Well, what happens to the politician that comes up and says, hey, all these billions of research and all this worry, let's just come out and, and say that homosexuality is a lifestyle that doesn't work. It's brought disease and death, and it's, it's something that uh, children ought to be taught that's wrong. Well, what politician's going to say that? He's not, because he's not going to get elected. I don't care how strong he believes or anything, he's not going to say it because he, he won't get elected. Uh, and the same is true with other of our practices when it comes to the national debt. Who wants to say that we're a bunch of spoiled brats, that, uh, that we want everything under the sun, and, and that we want to charge it? And, and so that for everything we want, we're willing to pay 80% of it, and then we mortgage 20% of it. Who wants to say that we're spoiled, and that, that we need to not have so much for ourselves, and we need to pay our, pay our debts and everything like that? Well, that's not popular. No politician's going to say that, because if you don't get elected saying that. Okay, in the same vein... What do you think happened to Isaiah when he goes out there to the people and he says, hey, all these problems you're talking about are because of your sin. Look at yourself. Look at the consequence. Look at your marriages. Look at your homes. Look at all these negative things that's happening. It's because of your sin. You've left God. You've left his law. Not going to be very well received. But now there's going to be some that think about what he's saying. But a majority are not going to accept it. So Isaiah goes out with that message. Okay. Now, the desire of the prophet is that people will hear him and repent. That they'll, they'll look at the consequences of their actions and they'll repent. Most of them don't. Then, then Isaiah's going to come back and he says, okay, you leave God no choice. God's going to withhold his reign in its right, right time. Uh, God's going to turn the elements against you. That God is going to show you who's boss. Well, they don't get their reign at the right time. Uh, the elements are not on their side or anything like that. And so there's still no repentance. People say, hey, that's just an accident. 
you know that was that was a coincidence. Uh, you know we've offended Baal. That's why that that's why that happened. So then Isaiah comes right back at him again. He says, "Okay, you leave God no choice. God's going to take a pagan country like Babylon, and He's going to conquer you. He's going to carry you into captivity. You're going to become a hiss and a byword. He's going to wipe out your city. He's going to wipe out your temple. And then, when this small remnant's been carried into captivity, you see that the problem is sin, and you repent." then God, and put your faith in God, then God will bring you back, and he'll restore your city, and he'll restore your temple. That's Isaiah's message in a nutshell. Then, out of this background, and here's where the prophecies of the Messiah come. Keep in mind that we mentioned that these kings, three of them are pretty good, one of them's a reprobate. More of the kings were bad than were good, and the good ones were not really good. Think about when, when Israel wanted a king to begin with, God didn't want them to have one. Remember in the days of Samuel, and they wanted a king, and God, God wanted, did not want any man exalted as Lord over other men. He wanted his law there, so he gave them a king. God doesn't force his will on anybody, and that's the message all through the Old Testament. Do your own thing if you want to. God just tells you, he says, this is right, just like a parent, pardon me, a parent guiding his child. And you hope that he'll go ahead and see that this is right, and he works. Okay, man chooses a king. David is the greatest of all the Jewish kings. Ask any devout Jew today who's the greatest Israelite king that ever lived, and they're going to tell you David. That's all I think about is David. Uh, David was the Messiah to come, you know, that he the Messiah is identified as David. But what about old David? Is he a great king? Yes. The best in Israel's history? Yes. Did he conquer the surrounding countries? Yes. Did they become prosperous with him? Yes. But was it all peaches under David? Well, David committed adultery. David killed a man to cover up his act. The, the whole nation suffered in many... David's home was in disarray, uh, like father, like son. Before David was through living his, his miserable domestic life, one of his sons had raped a daughter. One of his sons killed that son. And, and David died a broken-hearted man because of the domestic problems in his own life, and he started it all with his own lifestyle. If you get to heaven, you're going to see David because he repented. But what I'm saying is that David was very imperfect. He and his family and Israel suffered because of his sin. The same with these other guys here. Where we're going to look, as we study each one of them in context, we'll see that they each made their mistakes. All right, here's what's happening. God is demonstrating to Israel that no mere human being is perfect enough to be ruler and king and, and for you to bow down to and, and, and just do what he says. And so out of the shortcomings of their kings, and out of the shortcomings of their kingdom would, would be created that desire that wouldn't it be great if there was that perfect king? Wouldn't it be great if there was that kingdom where righteousness and mercy reigned and justice reigned and there was nobody that took bribes and all? And so the prophet caught up by the Holy Spirit would get caught up in that concept and then we have the prophecy of in the latter days. And we began to look forward to a time when a king is going to come in the lineage of David but he's going to be perfect. He's going to be righteous. He's going to be without blemish. Uh, he's going to be the perfect teacher of the law. He's going to set the example and live the way that God wanted everybody to live. And righteousness and justice will reign uh, through his teaching. And so out of I'm saying that the prophecies are not given in Isaiah in a one, two, three way. In fact, I remember as a young person, when I studied the prophecies, I wondered, well, why in the world you have to dig this out and search so hard that why don't they just utter it one, two, three? You know, we check those things out. The prophecies are uttered out of a situation that called forth that prophecy. 
And so out of the collapse of a fading kingdom and imperfect kings comes the prophecies of a Messiah to come. And so they were looking forward to this perfect one to come that would reign and, and be, received, be, be supreme over others, and they will begin to tell many of the characteristics. And when you look at the characteristics that are described in, in, in Isaiah, the characteristics that we all wish that all of our leaders had and we have, but they're not there, they're the ones that's projected into the society. We wish all our leaders were just and honest and would not take bribes. Well, the Messiah was going to be one like that. We wish all our leaders wanted the good for everybody. The Messiah was going to be uh, that, that type of person. But he was going to be more than that. Isaiah said the Messiah was going to be God with us. That he literally would be Emmanuel or God with us. Okay, he tells you the vision there in verse 1 concerning Jerusalem and all. And then he begins to start and to rebuke the people. Now, based on what we've said so far, anybody have any comments? Uh, I reared, in verse 2, I reared children, brought them up, but they rebelled against me. In other words, God is saying, I providentially cared for you, made you prosperous, uh, and you turned right around and rebelled against me. He mocks them. Verse 3, the ox knows his master, the donkey his, own, his owner's uh, manger. And so when you feed an animal, the animal respects you and feels for you, and he knows where his food is coming from. He said, Israel doesn't have the sense of an ox. They, that I fed them and cared for them and they don't even give me credit. They, they don't even do for me what an ox or a donkey does for its owner. Look at verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption, they've forsaken the Lord. Verse 5. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why persist in rebellion? In other words, he has reference to the fact that they are suffering the consequences of their sins. They're already being disciplined by God. And he's simply saying, why do you continue this way? It's maybe like you talking to a child that you're disciplining for doing wrong, and so you began to reason with him and say, why don't you stop it, you know? Why, why make life miserable, uh, you know, that I don't like to do this? Why do you put me in this situation? So he says, why, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of the foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores. Not cleansed or bandaged. In other words, in a physical way, he's describing their spiritual condition. Your country is desolate. Your cities burn with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you. Laid waste is when overthrown by strangers. All of this, he says, is going to happen right before your eyes. The daughter of Zion is, is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in the field of melons, like a, a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom and been like Gomorrah. He says, in other words, when I pass judgment on you, it's going to be so bad that you would become like Sodom and Gomorrah, except at my choice, I'm going to leave a few survivors. All right, now, all through Isaiah and all the prophets, they're going to talk about this remnant. And this remnant is these few survivors that when carried into captivity, look at the consequences of what has happened, come to realize the mistake of Israel, put their trust in God, and then as a result, God can take that faithful group and come back and, and build the city again and begin again to prepare the world for the Messiah. Notice how he mocks their worship. Uh, verse 11, I've had enough of burnt offerings, rams, fat of, fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goat. When you appear before me, who, who asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, Convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. In other words, you're, uh, you're, I can't even stand your assemblies that you come together to worship me. 
your new moon festivals, your appointed feast. My soul hates. In other words, everything about your worship to God, God says he hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll have my eyes. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Verse 19, if you're willing and obedient. What is he saying there? That uh, he condemns the sin. What, what we have in Israel... On the one hand, they're sinning, but what are they also doing? They're worshiping God. And so we see something here. By the way, this is consistent with every one of the prophets, and it's also consistent with the New Testament. This concept of living in a way, living your personal life in a way that is at variance with God's will, and then going to church on Sunday and singing praises and praying, is absolute nonsense. Now, if I understand Isaiah, that's what he's saying. It's ridiculous. He says, don't pray to me. I'm not going to listen to you. Don't assemble to worship me. It, it makes me sick. You know, it's a burden to me. I don't want anything to do with it. Um, what do we all say about the individual that meets you face to face and it's just as nice as they can be? I mean, you never dreamed that they thought you was the worst person around. And then you find out later that they've said these negative things. And then they come to meet you face to face and they're nice again. Now, how do you respond to that? Two-faced. Well, Two-faced, two and it, it kind of turns you, really turns you off, don't it? And you appreciate a person that just look you right in the face and tell you what they think. That that's two-faced. We we want nothing to do with that individual. Uh, we we say, well, man, they'll stab you right in the back, etc. Well, then that's God when it comes to people that come to worship Him and they sing songs. God, I love you, you know. And here we are to worship, and I'm praying to you. And in, in everything they do out here in their life, they're denying his law and everything that he says is right. And so Isaiah is telling the people, hey, you can't do this. You say, well, why are they doing this? Well, one reason, in the idolatrous people, they did exactly that. They created the idols in their own image, and they did their own thing. Remember when the Israelites came out of Egypt, and they got tired of waiting on Moses, and they made that golden calf and started to have some fun? Well, that's the way they worshiped back in Egypt. Uh, none, none of this sitting around. Uh, being so austere and good and everything like that. In Egypt, you had a big party and, and, and there was free sex and everything went on and, and you had the holy cow up here uh, giving sanction to all of that. And so they got tired of waiting on Moses and, and they just went at it in the way they had been doing it. And so all the other people were this way. What I'm saying here is maybe in a society where so many people go to church and then live the way they want to, it, it's very easy to deceive yourself into believing that that living the way we do is no big thing as long as we go to church and say a few prayers and whatnot. And so Isaiah deals with that. He says, hey, the, you know, this is, this is not the idols you're dealing with. This is the creator of the universe, and he wants no part of you when you're conducting yourself like this. Look at verse 21. See the faithful city? She's become a harlot. In other words, you were one time faithful. You're a harlot now. She was once full of justice and righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. Okay, so he condemns their sin. Now, let's get to chapter 2. Remember what I said in, that the prophet would do? And you're going to see this over and over and over throughout Isaiah. said he would condemn their sin. He would try to get them to repent. Remember the statement, come let us reason together. Though your sins are red, they'll be white as snow. In other words, repent and God will clean you. But, 
out of that despair and out of that background, here you are as an individual that maybe you have turned to God. And you've got your faith in him. And, and Isaiah's telling you that, man, God's going to wipe this place up. And it's going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. And you're, and you're thinking, well, what about God? We haven't all turned that way. There, there's a few of us that still love you. You know, we don't like the situation. We don't, we don't like the ungodliness and all. Then out of this statement of condemnation for their sin will come a prophecy. Now, I've got something. And Isaiah's going to say, basically, I've got something for you, too. It's going to be better. And so look at chapter 2. This is what Isaiah, the son of Amos, said concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations. They will settle their disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So he says, a time is coming when God's law will go forth from Jerusalem, but he says many nations will come in. Right now, all we have is Israel. But he says the time is coming when there's going to be people from many nations that come in. And here's the effect that's going to be on those people. In other words, their hearts are going to be changed, and he describes that changing of hearts. By the way, it was a characteristic of the prophets and of the writers of that day to, in a figurative sense, depict the changing of heart from a warlike person to, a, to a, a, a another type person that we have here in terms of beating implements of war and implements of peace. In other words, it was a poetic metaphor. It's figurative language. It was used by the other writers of that day uh, Isaiah used something that was very familiar with the, to the people of that day, and so he depicts this in order to depict a change of mind as a result of this law that was going to go forth from Jerusalem. And so Isaiah said a time will come. Now the question is, what about these last days? Remember in Acts, when Peter is preaching, and you've got Acts 2 and verse 16, 17, and he starts by quoting Joel, Peter and the apostles preaching, and he said, it was written in Joel that in the last, Joel wrote that in the last days. And he says, this is that which Joel wrote. The prophets depicted Assyria as a country that God would deal with. They had Babylon. They dealt with Medo-Persia. They had Greece. And then they came on down to the Roman Empire. Like, for example, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. And then he talked about the Medo-Persian Empire that would come after him. And then this worldwide Grecian empire that would come. And then in this fourth empire, he said, would be the most powerful of all of them, that the Lord God of heaven would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. And Daniel identified that in the last days. Uh, Daniel 12 and, and verse 9, Daniel 2, verse 28. And so the last days to the prophets was the last days of this period under consideration that the prophets were dealing with before the Messiah came. It was the last days of Judaism. Uh, Judaism would go to its downfall in the first century with the destruction of the Jewish temple, the destruction of the city, the scattering of the Jews. Judaism would be destroyed as a force, and then out of Judaism, the birth of Christianity. So what was the last days for Judaism was the birth of Christianity. And so in the last days, speaking to Jews, notice now he says in verse 1, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It's the last days of Judah and Jerusalem. 
And in the last days of that dispensation, before God destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, and keep in mind when we say that today, there is no Jew today that worships in keeping with the law of Moses. He can't. The temple's been destroyed. In a Muslim mosque, such where the temple was, the Jew couldn't worship except in the temple. There's no Levites. Only the Levite could offer the sacrifices. So there's no Jews worshiping according to the law of Moses. They don't offer sacrifices. <clears throat> they don't pray at the temple. They don't do any of those things that, that centered around the temple itself. They've been scattered all over the world. They, were, they have been a very small, persecuted people throughout history. And beginning in that century, that was the last days of Israel being a strong nation. And then, though, Christianity had its birth. What happened? He said the law will go forth from Zion, from Jerusalem, beginning at Pentecost, in the city of Jerusalem, the apostles began the proclamation of the Christian message. And from Jerusalem, Jesus told them, you'll go from Jerusalem to Samaria to the outermost parts of the earth. And so from that, as Daniel depicted this small rock that was cut off and, and smoked the image and filled the earth, beginning as a small body of people in Jerusalem, Christianity would conquer the entire world. Uh, so effectively that you live today in 1990 A.D., uh, the Latin abbreviation for the year of our Lord. The entire world measures and thinks of time around the birth of Christ. Now, there is no country on the face of the earth that you can go to that has not heard the name Jesus. There's no language in existence uh, used that where we do not have this material translated. There is no country, no continent where Christians do not exist. It exists today and has existed for almost 2,000 years as absolutely the only universal religion. And, that, and, it, and it stands there. So I'm saying that, forget about the New Testament, what you can say as a matter of fact, historically, to anyone today, looks pretty good right alongside this. I mean, uh, the person that's not a Christian, will he acknowledge Jesus as a historical character that was uh, lived at this particular time? Yes. Will he acknowledge that Christianity had its birth at this time? Yes. Is it a fact that Christianity is the only worldwide religion? Is it a fact that every place it's gone, it has had this kind of influence on mankind so that people have changed their ways and have stopped being a certain type of people and becoming a more loving, kind uh, type of individual as a result of this message? And the answer is yes. Uh, every, every place it's went uh, all over the world. Any comments or questions on what we have here so far? Okay, as you go through Isaiah now, you're going to find the same thing repeated over and over. Isaiah will confront them. He'll Keep in mind, this is a series of sermons preached over 50 years. By the way, it's not in chronological order. When we get to chapter 6, you'll see that chapter 6 has to happen first. That's when Isaiah's his call as a prophet in the last year of Uzziah is not described in chapter 6. What you have is a series, some historical statements, and a series of sermons that were recorded over a period of 50 years, and then we put them together. There's definitely a reason for it being put together this way, but it's not in perfect chronological order any more than your Gospels are in perfect chronological order. And so the book itself, the way it will be constructed, will follow the same pattern that's been laid down in the first two chapters here. And he gets right into the fact, he, tell, he identifies, and what I'm saying is that, that the scholars... I don't know, in fact, I don't know of any that would be an exception to that, believe these first two chapters were actually written when Hezekiah was king, and Sennacherib had came on the city, the city itself. But yet, it makes the perfect introduction 
because what you have here is what's going to take place all the way through here. In other words, condemnation of sin, recognize that your problems are because of sin. Look at what God is having to do to you. He doesn't want to do this. Come, let us reason together. If you'll repent, God will forgive you. If he don't, then God is going to do such and such. And then out of that despair, a prophecy about the Messiah. And this will take place over and over through the book. We're going to get, for example, when we get to chapter 7, we're going to have Ahaz, the ungodly king. And from to that ungodly reprobate, God will give a sign about a virgin that will conceive. He'll be speaking in a way that will deal with the situation at that time and also speak to a time when Emmanuel, God with us, will come to live right here on this earth. And then we'll proceed right on down and, God, and Isaiah will develop it. And he'll, re he'll eventually reach the point where this Messiah is a suffering servant. And, and, and he'll be full of paradoxes because Isaiah's Messiah is a conquering king on the one hand and a suffering servant on the other. He is defeated and killed on the one hand and he conquers and, is, and, and lives forever on the other. And, and so we have one of the reasons the Jew found this so hard to understand until it was actually fulfilled is that it has so many paradoxes. I mean, how are you a conquering king and a suffering servant at the same time? How do you live forever and die at the same time? How is, how is David your father and God your father at the same time? And, and so that all of these are paradoxes. They, they seem to be uh, statements are made that seem to be at variance with other statements. And, and yet when Jesus comes, all these paradoxical statements will meet their absolute fulfillment and we'll see how that someone could be a servant and a king, uh, conquered and yet conquered all in the same time. And when that happens in the Gospels, you go right back and correlate it with the Messiah that is developed all through the book of Isaiah. Anybody have any comments? Do you think Isaiah understood <coughs> some of the concepts that he put down? No. Not, not, I think you remember that he didn't. Uh, he, uh, obviously, the Jew was not looking for a crucified Messiah. When, when he told the apostles what was going to happen, they refused to believe it. Remember, Peter said, Lord, we'll never allow this to happen to you. Uh, a crucified Messiah was no Messiah at all. Uh, in John 12, 34, when he told them that he was going to die and be raised, they said, how can this happen? Uh, the Messiah is going to live forever. And so when they read those statements about the Messiah living forever, they, they, the, and then he was going to die, they just wiped out the other and gave that to somebody else. And they had him living forever on this earth, you know, right, right here. And so because of the paradoxical statements, so Isaiah uttered these statements. In fact, when we get into a fuller development of the evidences for the inspiration of this book, one of the great evidences is that you can show that the prophets did not understand a number of the things fully. Just like Isaiah knew, knew that someone was coming and the whole world was going to benefit. But he didn't know, you know, and he began, he, he had revealed to him certain characteristics about this individual. But that that individual that God would allow him to be crucified, uh, I don't believe that Isaiah understood that or if he did understand it, he sure didn't pass it on. That uh, they, they just, they didn't understand what they, what they had there. Uh, remember that Peter referred to the prophets of the Old Testament and said they searched diligently trying to understand these things and, and yet they didn't fully. Uh, Paul refers to it as a mystery that was revealed. A mystery is, is something that you have a certain amount of facts but you don't have all the information. And so you can see you've got this picture that's uh, maybe half complete 
And so you can see half the picture, but you don't have the rest of the information, so it remains a mystery. And so you need the, you need the rest of the pieces of the puzzle to tie it together. And so they would have to have that. Uh, in using it as evidence, it also is important from the standpoint that the best prophecies are the prophecies that were hard to understand. Because you see, the prophecies that were plain and simple, like born in a certain place, or he did this, he, he rode a donkey into Jerusalem, etc., the unbeliever would say, well, he picked them up like a grocery list and just went around to fulfill it. Uh, what the unbeliever has never been able to deal with is the prophecies that uh, involved his enemies, his own disciples, that nobody understood, and yet were perfectly fulfilled. You know, those have, those have, and, and there's, no better, there's no better example probably than Isaiah 53, as far as uh, tying it all together. But no, I think he, he definitely did not understand a lot certain things that he said. And then keep in mind, too, that you've got one prophet here. All these prophets are telling parts of the same person. And yet when he finally comes, we're going to take all their parts together and, and they're going to mesh. And somebody's going to have to explain from an unbelief standpoint, how does that happen? You know, how do, you, how do, you, how do different people in different languages and at different times write parts of the same event and then it just perfectly historically comes together and and meshes, and each complements the other in a perfect way. Anybody else? Okay, let's uh, call it, and we'll go ahead, and, and next week we'll start at exactly that uh, point, okay? We'll start at that point.